Welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend David Derrickson. David, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, uh, good, good. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll edit that out, I guess. <laughs> Hello, Derek. How's everything going? Everything good this week? Uh, yeah, it's been okay. It's been okay. How, how's everything in your neck of the woods? You know, I'm flying everywhere, really jet-setting, nice. really contributing to the carbon the footprint. Highlight. Not not happy yeah. about that. Wish wish everything could remain, you know, uh, it, locally, but, you know, one, one has to jet and one has to set. So that's what I've been doing. And there's been a lot of, you know, speaking of jet-setting, there's a transition for all you, you know, average podcasters out there. Listen to the best Yikes. and learn from them. <laughs> Uh, speaking of jet setting, we've had a lot of news in, in foreign affairs and foreign policy this week. Um, probably number one, the thing that's been getting the most coverage has been the uh, the death of Colin Powell. Um, one of the, I don't know if one of the architects of the Iraq war, I don't, I'm not sure if that's quite right, but uh, one of the- No, I wouldn't, yeah, I don't know if I'd call him an architect, but right. the chief salesman maybe of the Iraq one war. One of the salesmen, one of the salesmen. I think this is actually really- um, an interesting point, but you know, Colin Powell, very famously, I believe it's in February 2003, um, gave a speech before the United Nations that essentially laid out the case for the uh, American invasion of Iraq, which occur occurred a month later in March. But Powell's interesting because um, there was always kind of a division within the Bush administration between, you know, the, the Wolfowitzes, the Rumsfelds, the Cheneys, and the Powells, and the Condoleezza Rices. So, Derek, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about why that speech is so famous? And then I want to go a, a little bit back into Powell's career and, and to what I I think is really the most important thing that he did that has actually been ironically overlooked um, in the recent obituaries because of the the focus, the necessary focus on Iraq. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Powell's testimony or, or speech to the the UN Security Council was um, really the the it can be viewed as sort of the 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 keystone of the Bush administration's sales pitch uh, for invading Iraq there was virtually i mean literally we know this from from the like minutes after the attack on on september 11th on the pentagon you had donald rumsfeld running around telling people can we connect this to iraq let's see if we can make a connection to iraq i mean this was like the bush administration's uh, you know overriding interest and just uh, in very quickly and an issue that someone like paul wolfowitz had been focusing on literally since the 1970s in the context of nuclear proliferation and i think that gets a little lost the origins of all of this is really in the idea of nuclear proliferation, um, ultimately linked, I think, to someone like Albert Wallstetter, who was a mentor of Wolfowitz at the University of Chicago. But um, this is why the focus on Iraq had been building for literal decades. Yes. And this was something that was known, I mean, you know, not maybe widely known, but known well enough to uh, people who paid attention to, to sort of U.S. 
foreign policy and and politics that that people like Wolf I mean neocons Wolfowitz um and and also kind of died in the wool um military conservatives like uh, Rumsfeld uh, Dick Cheney uh had been part of the the project for a new american century which uh, had in the 90s sort of uh, you know famously uh, they'd all collectively signed on to this document urging the Clinton administration at the time uh, to overthrow Saddam Hussein to just sort of say well here we are. We don't have anything better to do. Let's go to war with Iraq. And Derek, um, also, and just now, to, to put a fine point on it, I believe the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998, which was passed by Congress, formally called for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. Yes. So this yes. was like so, I mean, this, this was literally official U.S. policy. Of, <laughs> it was official U.S. policy, and and there was a preponderance. There were a preponderance of people in the Bush administration in high level positions uh, who were publicly on record as sort of for years and years urging uh, the toppling of Saddam Hussein and, and regime change in Iraq. Uh, Powell was not one of them. Powell had this uh, built-in credibility. I don't entirely understand why. It's it's certainly related to uh, the Gulf War and, and the perception that he sort of was uh, overseeing this uh, perfect military strategy that led to a, a, a glorious, you know, American victory in, a, in a, a, a righteous conflict. All of those things, I think, are bullshit on some level. But um, he had this well of public credibility that, that existed, um, you know, and, and when he became Secretary of State in the Bush administration, he was seen as this sort of wonderful veteran kind of um, thoughtful guy who would take over the foreign policy for a, a president who, uh, you know, really didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground in that subject. Um, so everybody, you know, there was a lot of excitement about him being in that role. And again, he had this sort of uh, mystique with the public such that uh, when he went to the United Nations and, and you know, started waving these uh, fake an anthrax vials and uh, talking about mobile biological weapons labs, famously uh, giving as evidence of their existence a drawing of what we thought they might look like. Like, it was not, there was no evidence, actual uh, photographic evidence of their existence, but he had these diagrams of this is what they might be. Uh, if we ever find one, it might look like this. Um, and just, you know, giving this this... A case for the existence of a weapons of mass destruction program for the need to pressure uh, Saddam Hussein and to dangle the threat of an invasion uh, and regime change to do something, you know, to 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 uh, sort of get Iraq to to give up this weapons of mass destruction plan that it must be. Uh, noted there was no evidence that it existed. I mean, UN inspectors had gone in uh, and been looking around for evidence of this stuff and found nothing. Um, but to have Colin Powell, the, this this very austere kind of elder statesman figure at this point, uh, lay out this case, it was instrumental in uh, convincing, if not the international community, then at least uh, the American public that, hey, this is a legitimate concern. There must be something to this. Uh, it's not just this cadre of people in, in uh, the Bush administration who are, you know, like uh, champing at the bit to get Saddam Hussein. It must be a real thing. Uh, so he, he gets a well-deserved, I think, a lot of um, sort of blame for having convinced the American people to, to go along with this conflict. Saddam Hussein and his regime will stop at nothing until something stops him. He, of course, later 
expressed his regret for having been involved in it uh and that seems to have been enough to 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 uh kind of win his forgiveness in the uh the the political and media establishment because all you've seen uh all week have been these tributes to uh his integrity and oh if only for the iraq war he had all this integrity and he was such a great man um which again i mean we could go through his career we could talk about helping to cover up the my Lai massacre in vietnam we could talk about his role in uh the the, the reagan administration's support of death squads in central america we could talk about his uh role in selling or in overseeing uh the invasion of panama which for a little conflict relatively small conflict was one of the most uh, egregiously illegal things the united states has done uh in the past uh, several decades uh, so i mean there's a lot of black marks on his record but for some reason none of them ever seem to stick yeah i think that and the endorsement of obama was huge for uh, rehabilitating his um his reputation in the obama mccain primary uh, not primary in the obama uh, mccain election his endorsement was i think really critical to rehabilitating his himself in the minds of the liberal press effectively i think that that, that really yes that, I, that, that is that that is i think the moment i mean that did a lot for me i'd actually like you to run a uh, run through his career but for me uh, it's interesting the iraq thing again deservedly has gotten much attention but in my opinion um unless we hear otherwise at some point i think that war was overdetermined i think that war was going to happen um so i think that in some sense it's um uh he he's in Important for that, but that war was, I think, going to happen regardless of the sales salesmanship. What do you think? Um, I, I would agree. I mean, they were they were dead set on invading Iraq. There, there is a sense that if Powell had, let's say, gone to the UN or given a speech on television and uh, announced that you know these people are doing this unjustified, and I quit. You know, if he had done something dramatic like that, uh, that he could have derailed the momentum for the the war. And I mean, uh, who knows? It's it's a it's a uh, it's hard to consider that kind of a, a, a sort of counterfactual. But um, I think absent at at the very least something like that, something like uh, you know making a very public statement and quitting the administration and uh you know uh, th- which is not in Powell's character there's nothing in his uh, his career that suggests he would have been capable of such a thing um i think short of that you know the fact that he went to the un and, and gave this speech probably didn't matter that much i mean yeah, yeah, as you say the the war was going to happen anyway yeah so why don't you just take us a little bit briefly through his career uh, and you know, you not go into the details, but you know everything you mentioned from my lie onward, just to give a sense of who this was. And then I want to—I have one brief comment on him. Um, yeah, I mean, Powell, you know, his first posting was, I believe, in Vietnam. Um, he he was an advisor to the South Vietnamese Army. Uh, he was wounded uh, in Vietnam and taken out of uh, the field and uh, went back to the United States for a while. Then he came back. He went back to Vietnam in a in a um staff capacity and a staff role um and it was there it was at that point in in 1968 where he um basically towed the company line despite uh, a couple of reports from whistleblowers about the Milai massacre um he basically towed the company line in in covering it up um he didn't play a huge role again i mean he didn't play a huge role in that cover up but he did play a role in it um at one point he he 
gave an affidavit for a, a, a in a trial in the trial of a, a U.S. general who was accused of carrying out um, war crimes, uh, where he argued that targeting a seemingly civilian population was justified uh, because of the you know uh, supposed infiltration of the the South Vietnamese civilian population by uh, Viet Cong, etc. Um, so I mean he he played he was a cog in the wheel basically of the uh, the crimes that went on during that war. Um, he went on to serve in a, a number of political roles in the uh, in the Reagan administration. He was uh, senior military assistant to Caspar Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, later on, he was uh, he served as National Security Advisor. He became Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the uh, first Bush administration. Um, and, and it was there that he had interaction. And again, he was sort of a cog in the wheel. He wasn't like a, a major player, but it's clear that he, uh, or it's pretty clear that he knew something about the, the Iran-Contra affair. He, it's, um, you know, was the, one of the conclusions of the congressional investigation was that he had effect, essentially lost in his testimony to the uh, the committee that was investigating Iran Contra um, as part of the cover up, um, he certainly must have been involved on some level in the the support of uh, support for death squads. Um, again, I, I mentioned Panama. He was part of you know after the the Gulf War, which was sort of his uh, you know the crown jewel of his career. I think um, he, he oversaw the invasion of Panama, which under by every definition, whether you talk about international law or U.S. law uh, was an illegal uh, act that the atrocities from which we don't talk about very much because uh, in some ways they've never really been investigated, but they're still being, you know, uh, kind of uncovered even to the present day, some of the the, the crimes that went on during that conflict. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a sordid history. It's a history that I think you could probably uh, put together for just about anybody who's been involved uh, with the U.S. military or U.S. foreign policy over the last three or four decades. Um, but with Powell, there's this, again, sort of reservoir of, of uh, goodwill that exists uh, that I'm not sure would exist for, for many of these other figures. Um, partly, as you say, because of his endorsement of Obama, partly because, uh, you know, I, I think the, the lingering effect of the, the Gulf War and the good feelings that that uh, instilled in people um but you know for some reason in in his case in particular he's been able to uh, been able to kind of make these what you know i would say are sort of character defining uh things they're they're just asterisks basically in this uh career that we're supposed to understand as having been uh, very distinguished and i think to me what what people really haven't focus on, and I think it's a really important structural thing that he did, was after the um, delegitimization of the American military apparatus and even the military-industrial uh, industrial complex after Vietnam, it was people like Fa uh, Powell, people who had these sort of austere sensibilities, people who had this sort of like gravitas about them, that were able to rehabilitate the military um, first um, through the declaration of the Powell Doctrine, which was essentially that we won't fight Vietnams any longer, and then through the appearance of successful military interventions in places like um, the, the first Gulf War in Iraq during the first Gulf War, that really allowed this rehabilitation of a totally um, delegitimized and what uh, many Americans appear to be illegitimate military apparatus. And I think that was a really absolutely crucial thing that he did. 
um, that that really hasn't been talked about, uh, but is but that is nonetheless um, absolutely central to understanding his legacy and why he's such an important historical figure. Yeah, I mean the Powell Doctrine is still, I mean, still common parlance in in you know talking about the the U.S. foreign policy, even though. Like Powell's own career destroyed. I mean, he destroyed his own doctrine basically with the uh, with his involvement in in the Iraq War, which was just kind of, you know completely counter to uh, you know what he claimed to to believe about U.S. military inter- intervention. Um, but nevertheless, it is like this uh, you know a, a standard part of the discourse when we're talking about uh, military invasions or, or uh, interventions on uh, on the foreign stage. Precisely. So uh, that's that's it on. Colin Powell, um, if, if anything happens, you know, with how people rehabilitate his legacy or not, we'll definitely talk about that more soon. But why don't we take it? I thought you were going to say if anything happened to change, like, <laughs> no, I think if, his if story the dead is rise close. from the grave. We have zombies. We'll, we'll definitely, yeah, cover we'll definitely cover show. zombies on American prestige. You'll be the, the first uh, to know about that. But why don't we take our auto gyro uh, from the Beltway over to Russia? And Derek, what have our friends, what have our friends in the Kremlin? Um, been doing over there. They've been making some moves in terms of Afghanistan and also in terms of NATO. Yeah, so this is um, basically just to to break up in a sense the uh, the uh, the discussion of uh, U.S. related things. But um, there have been a couple of developments related to Russia. One of which uh, is, as you mentioned, uh, their relationship with NATO is uh, sort of at an all time low. Uh, the uh, The Russian government suspended its diplomatic mission to NATO headquarters in Brussels uh, this week uh, to, to take effect. It's unclear, maybe as soon as uh, the 1st of November, although it may take them uh, a little more time to, to implement. Uh, this was a response to the expulsion of eight members of the, the Russian mission uh, by NATO uh, earlier this month, um, ostensibly for uh, having been undeclared intelligence officers, so basically espionage. Um, NATO also announced that it was cutting the total maximum size of the Russian mission to 10 people, which was down from, I think, 20. Uh, so basically cutting it in half. Uh, the Russians said basically at that point, we can't get anything done with this size under these sort of constraints. So there's no uh, reason to maintain this mission at all. And they've suspended it. NATO is not interested in equitable dialogue and joint work. If that's the case, then we don't see the need to keep pretending that changes in the foreseeable future are possible, because NATO has already stated about the impossibility of such changes. Uh, The Russian diplomatic mission to NATO wasn't really doing very much anyway. Uh, and there are many other ways that NATO or NATO member state governments can keep in touch with Russia and sort of discuss, uh, things that, that are relevant to the NATO Russia relationship. Um, so this isn't a huge crisis or anything like that, but it it does reflect the sort of deterioration, uh, ongoing deterioration of the, uh, relationship between Russia and the West, broadly speaking. 
Yeah, so I'm sure there'll be some developments on that, but things aren't looking good. My question is what this is going to mean in terms of larger geostrategy. Uh, it's difficult to know, given Russia's power position, whether this matters or not. But um, it'll be interesting to see as, again, we're, we're witnessing, I think, the the real um, coming apart of the post-Cold uh, War order. It's turning into something new, and I think this is part and parcel of that. And the I mean, the other Russia-related news is they hosted a, a summit uh, on Afghanistan uh, on Wednesday uh, that included the Taliban and included representatives of uh, regional governments, Iran, Pakistan, India, China. Uh, and, you know, they, they came away kind of calling for uh, greater humanitarian support for the Afghan people, uh, particularly funded by the the countries that were responsible for creating Afghanistan's humanitarian crisis, so i.e. the United States. Uh, the U.S. didn't participate in the conference, but may engage if this becomes a thing that, uh, you know, if there are regular kind of Russian-led summits or regional summits, it may uh, participate down the road. Um, there are a couple of, I mean, there are a couple of implications here. One is it's interesting that uh, uh, I think you're, you, this may be the start of a, a greater of a beautiful uh, regional <laughs> effort. Yeah, maybe. Maybe the start of a beautiful friendship. I mean, it is, I think, um, indicative of the kinds of things that can happen when the United States is no longer squatting in parts of the world, uh, you know, distant parts of the world, that um, it, it sort of actualizes some of the uh, countries in those regions to uh, to do things, you know, to, to take steps to, to sort of um, you know, solve. I don't want wow, to say solve problems. Solved anything? Wow! If the United um, States but, isn't know, there, it, fucking it, things up. People on the <laughs> ground actually do things. Yeah, shockingly. Yeah. You know. Um, I mean, the other thing that that I think is is salient here is the issue, the challenge of getting humanitarian aid uh, to the Afghan people under the constrictions that. Uh, the U.S. and Western nations have have created under the the restrictions, I should say, uh, where you know we've frozen uh, Afghanistan's uh, foreign reserves. We're uh, insisting that any aid that comes into the country doesn't go through the Taliban, even though the Taliban uh, are the government now. Um, and and sort of you know the the big challenge is how do you get aid directly to the Afghan people then if you want to bypass uh, the Taliban? And can you do that without, uh, you know, the Taliban have shown some willingness to cooperate in efforts like that, but I don't know how far that uh, that willingness extends. And just mechanically, it's very difficult to, uh, to figure out how you can do this without involving the government of the country. So, um, things that, that still need to be worked out, I think. Yeah, and, and will or won't be, uh, as the case may be. So why don't we take our submarine uh, back to the United States and talk about this new piece that Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute uh, recently published on Iran. So Derek, what's going on there? Yeah, this is a real um, kind of blockbuster revelation uh, that he's uh, that that he released or that uh, uh, was posted to the Quincy Institute's responsible statecraft uh, website uh, last night um, or sort of late yesterday. Um, yesterday I, being I Wednesday. It's, it's Thursday. <laughs> so yesterday being, yeah, yesterday being Wednesday. I always have to remember to do that. Um, the, the upshot is uh, according to 
Parsi and uh, the information that he has, um, the negotiations over reviving uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, whatever you want to call it, um, have been derailed because the Biden administration, um, or in part because the Biden administration has refused to commit even to remaining uh, in the deal and upholding its obligations under the deal for the rest of Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, what's interesting about this is the Iranians, it's pretty well known at this point that the Iranians, uh, when they they started engaging with the Biden administration on reviving the deal, which was, of course, torn up by uh, Donald Trump famously in 2018 and has, has basically uh, is no longer, uh, is sort of technically still in existence, but for, for all intents and purposes, uh, it's it's defunct. Um, one of the things that the Iranians demanded as or laid out as part of their initial uh, demands for coming back into compliance and restoring the deal was a commitment from the United States uh, that it would not break the deal. And so, it, you know, in perpetuity, sort of through the end of, uh, you know, its sunset clauses. How and, dare and, they? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, how dare they uh, <laughs> demand something so unreasonable? Uh, but but in fact, I mean, it is unreasonable under the, the constriction, constriction of uh, U.S. politics. Right. Uh, the current right. administration cannot promise that the next administration won't do exactly what Donald Trump did uh, and pull out of the deal. So that, I mean, that was a big sticking point. It seems, according to this piece that, that uh, Trita Parsi has written, that the Iranians backed off of that demand and then just asked for a commitment uh, that the Biden administration itself wouldn't pull out of the deal at some point, uh, you know, absent some Iranian provocation, I guess, uh, and, and couldn't even get that how dare the they expect that we will uh, restrict ourselves <laughs> in literally the slightest way possible to make a deal? I mean, it's it's really it's really shocking. I mean, if that's the 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 issue, then you can understand why uh, the Iranians have sort of been very kind of cold turned sort of a, a, a turned a cold shoulder to the idea of uh, further talks because this is. An agreement that obligates the Iranians to make substantial sacrifices to impose substantial limitations on their nuclear program in return for sanctions relief. But the deal uh, was structured in a way that it's very easy uh, – it would be very easy for the United States to uh, obliterate the whole deal and and have – all these international sanctions suddenly kind of – it's called snapback. It's called a snapback mechanism – suddenly brought back to bear uh, against Iran. Um, and so, you know, if you can't even get the Biden administration to agree not to do that for the rest of its time in office, like what is the purpose here? Like what are we – you know, what what are we asking uh, the Iranians to do versus what is the United States prepared to do uh, in return? And it, it's, it turns out we're asking them to do uh, a lot. And to do everything, to, to do anything, and it just shows uh, that the really. United States clearly doesn't. It, it, for all the bluster about Iran, it's not worried about Iran. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done this. You know, it's just pure political nonsense that people use in this country uh, to gin up support for uh, ridiculous American hegemony that shows no signs of going away ever. Um, yeah, it's 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 a really 
yeah i mean i can't i'm sort of flabbergasted by it uh, and i've read this a couple i read this piece a couple of times and i'm still like uh you know kind of jaw on the floor having covered the the nuclear talks back way back when um i i just it's 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 really stunning to me that they won't even uh, offer this small relatively insignificant commitment uh to remain party to the deal and the danger for the iranians then is that um you know you you agree to uh you know reimpose all these restrictions on the nuclear program and come back into compliance with the deal the united states says okay we're going to lift sanctions and then it gets back in the deal and immediately turns around and uh you know invokes this snapback mechanism and and iran is screwed at that point i mean really you know screwed in a way that even uh would surpass the the extent to which the trump administration uh put them in a bind and yeah one of the i mean one of the things that the trump administration miscalculated frankly if it wanted to to put uh an end to the deal altogether was in in unilaterally withdrawing and giving up its right to invoke the the snapback uh procedure and and re you know kind of kill the deal altogether um it, it's it's sort of haste to get out of the agreement it, it it really i think miscalculated in a sense uh but this is the risk that iran would be running that the biden administration could be just trying to get back in the deal so that they can kill it once and for right. all and, and i don't and know that, that i don't think that's what uh the biden administration necessarily wants to do but if you're iran and you're sitting there and you've experienced what's happened over the last six years uh why would you trust anything that, yeah, that and, the and biden administration could say particularly if they're not willing to to commit to it right like who knows what they're right. going to do without, if you're not iran. willing to put any like legal uh, even legalese, which of course you know we know could be broken, or to you know to establish any kind of a, uh, a, a mechanism to to compensate Iran in the event of uh, the deal collapsing again or anything like that. I mean, why why would uh, if you're you know in the Iranian government, why would you believe anything that the U.S. says at this point? Precisely. Um, and on that flabbergasted note, Derek is again flabbergasted. Uh, we're going to call it, we're going to call it a week. Um, and we hope you guys enjoy our interview uh, about nuclear issues. Um, we, we haven't really touched this issue and, uh, it's a really important one. So, uh, thanks as always, uh, again, just to remind everyone, uh, please subscribe. Uh, this takes a lot of work and we really can only do it with your support and also check out our merchandise store with our dope ass logo. Derek, I will see you next week talk to you later for as long as the global supply chain holds up yes tbd anyway. <laughs> get it now yeah, really before the holiday rush <laughs> <laughs> all right Derek. bye-bye hello listeners it is uh i Derek. it is time for your <laughs> weekly <laughs> american prestige i uh, Derek. interview hi everybody that's the title of uh, your autobiography i Derek. i like that <laughs> it's i'm working on it i'm working on it as you can tell i'm joined as always by my co-host danny bessner uh hello everyone this week we are going to be talking about friend of the pod nuclear weapons uh <laughs> Big fans of nuclear weapons around here. We we love them. Uh, can't get enough of them. Uh, I actually do think everybody should have them at this point, thanks to the United States uh, post-Cold War insanity. But anyway. Uh, the old Ken Waltz argument. Yeah, yeah that's perhaps proliferation a for another yeah. time. Uh, but yep. We're going to talk about the U.S. nuclear program. We're going to talk about its history and development. Uh, and we're going to talk about the, uh, shall we say, uh, defense contractor-driven uh, push to modernize the U.S. nuclear 
arsenal uh, in the in the coming years to the tune of uh, they say a trillion dollars. It'll probably be much more than that, uh, but we'll see. Um, so we're joined. We're very lucky to be joined by two uh, experts on the subject. Uh, Emma Claire Foley is a research associate at Global Zero, uh, and John Carl Baker is Nuclear Field Coordinator and Senior Program Officer at the Plowshares Fund. So uh, both of you, uh, to both of you, thank you uh, for being on the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So I want to start with, uh, I want to give people a, a sense of the history of the development of the U.S. nuclear program uh, you know, before we get into the discussion of uh, the the modernization effort and what's going on today. Um, why don't we start with um, sort of an overview of where we've come from? And uh, in particular, I don't want to get into, uh, you know, the, the Manhattan Project, World War II, uh, narrative that I, I assume most people would be broadly familiar with. Um, but I want to talk about the post-World War II period where you have uh, the Truman administration and then the Eisenhower administration opting to continue uh, the development of the U.S. nuclear program. You have the, the creation or the invention uh, of the hydrogen bomb. You have improvements in um, missile technology, all under this sort of uh, aegis of the Cold War, and also under you know some pressure, uh, it seems kind of absurd at this point to, to talk about this, uh, but under some belief that this would be a cost-saving measure that you could build nuclear weapons and design bigger and better nuclear weapons uh, while cutting back on the on the rest of the military and save some money. Why don't you guys, Emma Claire, why don't you start us you know start us off in this narrative of uh, what's going on when World War II comes to an end and decision makers are sort of decide trying to trying to determine you know what to do with the the US nuclear program? Yeah. Um, so I mean I think the usual place to start this would be uh, the decision to bomb Japan on the part of the United States, um, which has been used in different contexts to um, justify different positions about the U.S. nuclear program, I'd say, um, more than anything, whether you think it was um, uh, signaling towards the Soviet Union, where you, whether you think it was like an essential um, act to, to end the World War II um, or whether you think of it as the beginning of the arms race, um, it's, you know, but if you actually look at what was happening there, it was kind of, you know, not a, not people sitting down and calmly making the decision to, um, introduce this horrifying new weapon to the world, but just kind of a series of contingencies, like, like anything happens. Um, but I mean, you know, it, it did kind of mark the beginning of this new period, um, where, where the U.S. and then, you know, very quickly other countries were um, considering uh, what the role of these weapons was going to be in their military posture and their um, in their politics. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, you, you hit that the idea that did come up, um, especially in the Eisenhower administration of New York, nuclear weapons is kind of a cost-saving measure, right? Like the emphasis um, before this period was really, you know, most of all on um, air power. But um, the idea was that uh, having this sort of 
you know, frightening capability was was a way to kind of avoid uh, preparing for these really large scale wars um, that were very imaginable, you know, at the at the end of, of World War Two and then, you know, going into um, the Korean War. Um, but I think that, you know, the you know, the period we're talking about now is um, kind of the the up until the, the early 60s, you know, where the nuclear program is developing and there hasn't been this major um, reconsideration of, like, is this a good idea? Like, what is this and what kind of role does it play, which happens around the Cuban Missile Crisis? Um, and, you know, in that period, I would say the number one thing driving the development of the nuclear weapons program was sort of internal political dynamics within the U.S. military, you know, sort of the balance of... Um, influence among the different branches, which one was going to be the one that had nuclear weapons or the most or the best nuclear weapons. And a lot of what we know about as sort of commonplaces about what how nuclear weapons work today um, in UN, U.S. politics and globally, I think, comes out of that period and out of the compromises that were made. So just to add briefly to that, because this happens to be something that I study, another important thing just to understand about the earlier nuclear program is that the Soviets have, of course, all of these troops in Europe, uh, and the United States really felt that it couldn't muster all these troops. So another thing that it was supposed to do was to counter the Soviet Union. So it's very much connected to the Cold War on one hand. And on the other hand, just to talk about um, what Emma was just mentioning, is that um, it was also promoted. It seems ironic from our perspective, or perhaps disgusting, as a humane weapon, because the idea was that you'd be able to end wars in, in a heartbeat to the degree, and this is not a document that many people know about, but right after the bombing of Hiroshima, a high-ranking Air Force official wrote another high-ranking Air Force official saying that this is the most humane weapon in human history. We, you know, we didn't have to, you know, invade. We didn't even have to bomb other Japanese cities. We just ended the war in a heartbeat. So you have this melding in the earlier nuclear program of geopolitical and um, in, uh, ideas and also like ideas about humanity and humaneness, which is really um, critical to understanding how this world-shattering weapon um, got off the ground. I want to talk about uh, some of the key developments that, that took place over these first couple of decades, let's say after uh, World War II in terms of uh, warhead technology. I mean, you have the development of the hydrogen bomb, um, you know, much more intensely powerful weapons. Uh, you have improvements in missile technology. You have eventually the creation of the intercontinental ballistic missile, um, which, you know, changes the calculus somewhat from, from a weapon that has to be fired by human beings in an airplane to something you can fire from, you know, uh, way back in, in your home country and, yeah, and push button warfare, incredible damage. Exactly. <laughs> push button warfare. Um, and in particular, I wonder if you, you could talk about how we got to the concept of the nuclear triad, because this is going to be uh, as we move into the present day and, and talk about um, the nature of the, the nuclear arsenal now and the modernization effort. Um, the triad is an interesting, um, I would argue, dated concept, but it's one that uh, still pertains. And I, I'm curious what the origins of that were. Well, I'm, I'm happy to say something here. Um, and I, I think the important thing to bear in mind when we talk about the triad is that 
This wasn't some grand plan envisioned by uh, military planners at the time, that the only way to protect the country was to have a triad, three different forms of nuclear delivery devices, and that that was the ultimate way to protect the United States. Um, that's actually a sort of after-the-fact justification for the programs that already existed. It doesn't mean it's completely invalidated the theories behind them, but the important thing to bear in mind is just like the decision to, well, actually, there wasn't really a decision to drop the bomb on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as, as Alex Wellerstein is often saying. But, but much like the, the, the series of actions that led to the bomb being dropped, these were a whole series of contingencies that developed into the triad that we now have, including inter-service rivalry. Um, there were different services that wanted different weapons. And if you go back and you look at the development of things like what became ICBMs and later submarine launch ballistic missiles, you know, the military was kind of exploring a bunch of different options um, for all the ways that you might deliver nuclear weapons. And then ultimately there were sort of a few that were kind of decided upon. But even now, right, not everything fits really neatly into the idea of the triad being bombers uh, and subs and ICBMs. There's all sorts of other options. There's tactical nuclear weapons. Um, and it, it doesn't fit as neatly into this kind of like very elegant uh, term, the triad, that we constantly hear from the Pentagon um, because they're always painting it as, you know, the ultimate guarantor of the security of the United States. Talk a little bit about the logic behind the triad. Uh, what is the argument that gets made for having um, you know, as the three kind of main pillars of the nuclear arsenal, ICBMs, submarine launch ballistic, ballistic missiles, and nuclear bombers. Yeah, and as you do that, maybe you could also talk about the importance of inter-service rivalry, because to me, is this is really the, the reason that we have this triad. So the geostrategic logic and then sort of the domestic politics, which often remain shielded from the American public about the development of this particular approach to nuclear weapons. Um, yeah, I mean... You can go as deep as you want to into the logic of why we have these weapons. And we have, you know, many people whose entire entire work has been to justify um, in after the fact, like that this is the only way it could be, you know, um, and that there's sort of a brilliant logic that where all our bases are covered with the triad. But I mean, what you generally hear is that you have kind of the um, the land based force, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, um, which are. Uh, sort of touted as having various advantages by people who believe that they're um, useful or more useful than they are, uh, you know, a liability. Um, I am not one of those people, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that uh, having um, these weapons just kind of sitting in the ground is a way to force your opponent. Um, and there's really, you know, only one opponent that's being discussed here, which is Russia, to like um, spend its, its weapons, like, knocking those out, you know, to sort of incur a certain cost, um, in the event of a, of a nuclear war. Um, the nuclear sponge. So, yes. The nuclear sponge, which is a, um, the deeply respectful way, uh, we refer to the American upper Midwest, uh, in this context. <laughs> um, Take that so, Midwest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but then we have, um, these two other, uh, legs of the triad, right? This is the metaphor, uh, we're using here, which um, are seen as more flexible for various reasons. You have bombers, which are mobile. Um, 
which uh, and and this is an interesting thing in the sort of historical dimension that you know part of the shift towards considering these land-based missiles um, had a lot to do with the range of uh, bombers, uh, lake bomber technology at at the time during the you know the 40s and 50s. Um, also, it, you know, it's also interesting to compare how the U.S. Uh, emphasized bombers uh, because of the location of allies around the border of the Soviet Union versus Soviet Union, um, which didn't um, have a similar situation you know, until uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and so was more interested in these land-based missiles. Um, but, you know, so so all of this is, is very much um, kind of preserved from these condition, technological conditions and political conditions of the development of these weapons. Anyway, so, yeah, you have bombers, which in theory um, are more mobile, um, can, can deliver uh, weapons with um, kind of a, if you, if you need, uh, I guess, a flexible option is the word that's often used. And then in a similar vein, um, there's submarine-based missiles, um, which are less detectable, sort of seen as another advantage. If you're the kind of person who thinks about um, you know, launching a nuclear weapon in, in terms of its advantages, um, and are also, you know, able to be based kind of anywhere that there's an ocean. Um, so the idea is that uh, in various scenarios of nuclear war, like you're able to use these weapons in different combinations um, to um, make sure that all your bases are covered, um, that you're able to sort of respond to a first strike, which is often the scenario that's discussed. Um, what's not discussed is uh, the degree to which anything other than the um, technology which is necessary to launch these weapons would be, you know, preserved after even round one of a nuclear war. But what is really sort of a consideration when you're talking to someone who's arguing for the triad is um, the extent to which uh, the ability uh, to launch a nuclear weapon can be preserved even after that country has been bombed. So there are a lot of considerations that go into it. Um, but it is all just kind of, you know, in this fantasy world where something would be left after a nuclear you know, attack. And this is what's also something so interesting to me about someone who studies like the Rand Corporation is that you get these incredible fantasy worlds where people, you know, talk about nuclear exchanges and they do precise calculations on what would happen if X or Y exchange happened where. And it's like this whole like sci-fi fantasia where very, I, I think very smart people wind up dedicating their lives to something that would just be so horrific and bad for humanity that there's absolutely no way for this to be positive in, in any way, shape or form. So it's also also a really interesting uh, example of sort of the flights into fantasy that defined the American empire after 1945. This this dream world, this dreamscape of, of nuclear exchange is something really interesting. But John, um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about what I mentioned about the inter-service rivalries and how that affects um, the development of nuclear weapons. Because I remember during my comps, this was like the major argument ab about like why the nuclear program developed as it did was because of fighting essentially between the Navy and the Air Air Force, with the Air Force in particular seeking an independent strategic mission to justify its separation for the um, from the Army, which happened in the 1947 National Security Act. So I'll stop talking, and John, if you could speak to that, that would be great. Well, Dan, honestly, it sounds like you probably can explain it a lot better than I can. Um, but <laughs> the, the, 
the uh, the general idea, yes, is that you know, kind of as I was saying before, this isn't something that necessarily arose from strategic considerations, um, but actually from the desire of certain services to have access to a nuclear weapon and, or, or nuclear delivery device, and therefore to justify their continued existence um, and continued funding after World War II, when there was some talk of kind of demobilization. And of course, we know that didn't really happen. Um, in fact, military spending uh, kind of kept expanding uh, as a result of the Cold War. So I don't know, Dan, I'd, I'd like to hear your take on it. Maybe you can explain it to me. <laughs> well, I think that uh, essentially you, you have a fight amongst the American military um, driven by the Air Force, with the Air Force presents itself as as sort of the, the technological leader of the U.S. military. And, and this was its essential justification since the 1930s when it was still, you know, the Army Air Force is informally connected to the to the military and, and the sort of major focus on bombers and other, um, you know, things that Strategic Air Command would control, which existed for much of the Cold War. I think all of the Cold War, actually. Sorry if I get my Strategic Air Command history wrong, but for decades. Um, uh, it basically allows the Air Force to, to justify its existence because otherwise, it's really important to think when people who are listening is that Air forces can be used in different ways. They they could either be you know supporting ground troops. You know, like think about World War One when someone um, goes over a trench and charges at the other trench. Uh, there could be your air force side sort of shooting the other people and bombing the other people, or it could have its own mission. Uh, what's called a strategic mission, the ability to end wars on its own. And the nuclear weapon is, I think, so critical to the development of the air force because it provides a strategic logic for it to end wars on its own, you know, in the blink of an eye. So I just wanted to highlight the importance of domestic political conditions here, because oftentimes this, the conversation is in these like highfalutin geostrategic terms, and often it's just very parochial interests within the military itself that drives developments that that seem, you know, grander than they actually are. That's all I really wanted to get at. I would add to that, too. I mean, that this sort of inter-service rivalry is still going on today. I mean, one of the things that's happening right now, my colleague Matt Corda at the Federation of American Scientists has written about this, is that there's been a kind of denigration of the idea that subs are essentially invincible. Um, and the idea is mobilized to justify the Air Force continuing to have land-based ICBMs, which are, of course, completely obvious where they're, it's completely obvious where they're located. In fact, that's the entire point. And there are a lot of people who think that ICBMs, ground-based ICBMs, are just kind of irrelevant and redundant. Um, but one of the ways you have to continue justifying their existence is, ironically, to sort of denigrate um, the capabilities of the other services. And we still see that happening today. So this isn't really a thing that's gone away. Let's take things forward a little bit and get into kind of the 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 changes around how people talk about nuclear weapons and nuclear power um, and the, the sort of shift into uh, an overarching concern about arms control. I think uh, Emma Claire mentioned the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is, is sort of a, a, a turning point. By the, by the late 1960s, you have, uh, you know, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, you lead into uh, the strategic arms limitation talks with, between the, the Soviet Union and the United States. There seems to be a clear shift from um, the, the attitude in the 1950s when you had, you know, Eisenhower was doing the Atoms for Peace uh, program, and uh, you had Project Plowshare, which you want to talk about flights of fancy, was uh, not even just about the benefits of nuclear power, it was about how can we use nuclear bombs for, for civilian purposes, just kind of ridiculous things to think about. Um, you know, you had the International Atomic Energy Agency, 
agency created in the late 1950s to sort of uh, oversee the the safe but fruitful uh, exploitation of nuclear technology. Um, and, and, you know, as we go into the 1960s and get into the 1970s, there does seem to be this shift toward uh, talking in- instead about how do we limit these weapons? How do we, you know, put some caps on them, maybe even start to talk about uh, getting rid of them? What what marks this shift in, in, your, in your mind? Um, well, I think you can contribute it to a few different things. I think it's a it's a good impulse to start at the um, Cuban Missile Crisis uh, when you're talking about this, which did um, sort of create you know a deep and visceral public awareness of the vulnerabilities that having nuclear weapons um, creates. And uh, I think it, I think it did go past a little bit the sense of like, oh God, they're pointing theirs at us. To like, oh, well, if, you know, a basic understanding of it's like, well, if we both have them, it's like, this is just a situation that will be ongoing. And so I think that was um, reflected um, in at the highest levels of, of government, you know, and within the, the administration um, with like a, a goal to move towards um, eliminating nuclear weapons um, as a as something that could occur in the foreseeable future. And, you know, this is something that I think there's repeating that um, throughout the uh, nuclear period, throughout since we've created nuclear weapons, there's been this expectation that we would get rid of them. Um, that will be, as you said, enshrined in this in the uh, non-proliferation treaty that comes later in that decade, um, and that like is still at least um, in a in an official sense uh, what the nuclear weapons programs of the world are predicated on, even as you watch. Um, and listen to messaging from uh, the U.S. military, uh, which sort of assumes that they'll kind of be around forever, and we can we can have this this illusion of safety. So, I mean, I think there's this there's a public awareness, there's a um, official awareness, and it, it is kind of driven as well by a sense that it's no it's certainly no longer about just um, the U.S. kind of sitting there and deciding what to do with this capability. Um, it's also about uh, the Soviet Union, you know, it's it's quickly becoming a problem that includes many different countries, includes China, you know, um, and will soon include other countries. And um, that, I think, encourages um, a more active approach to uh, thinking about this as a problem that could and should be solved. Uh, based on what Emma Claire just said, could um, maybe um, one of you discuss when does the U.S. become interested in non-proliferation? The Cuban Missile Crisis is obviously a, a moment, but what is what is the fear? Um, is it the loss of the nuclear duopoly? Is it the fact that the people are worried about you know these local nuclear exchanges that become global? What is what is the uh, fear about pro- uh, proliferation because it becomes such a major topic, particularly from the '60s onward? I mean, it's a couple separate fears, I guess I would say. I mean, there's one of, you know, uh, an arms race that's bilateral, that's just getting worse and worse and worse. And with the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you actually have an example where uh, many, many people around the con- around the world were able to see that we could actually get to the brink of nuclear war. This is a thing that could really happen. It isn't just abstract. It's a very real danger. So that's one fear. The other fear is of more and more countries getting nuclear weapons. Um, that's the concern that's often gathered under the idea of kind of, you know, horizontal nonproliferation. Um, and that was a fear as well, too, that um, you'd see the weapons spreading um, to more and more countries. 
Um, and so there was, I mean, there were a variety of things that people were scared about. I will also say too, that in the fifties and sixties, um, you had, um, a, a variety of social movements kind of gathered under one big, uh, disarmament banner, um, that were, uh, very appalled by things like nuclear weapons testing. Um, there was, they were, they were appalled by the prospect of a nuclear war. And so you did have a public outcry. This wasn't just a matter of like, you know, government officials batting these ideas around. There was some public engagement in the fifties and sixties and, and really throughout the Cold War, but there were particular moments of upsurge when, um, the public actually came out and, and kind of made it, had its feelings felt, um, and, and spoke out publicly against nuclear weapons. This happened again, um, in the early 1980s too. Why, what, what explains those moments of the public all of a sudden becoming interested in nuclear weapons? Well, I think there's a lot of different explanations. It's probably a variety of factors, but I think it's hard to deny that both of them were associated with moments when the Cold War was very, well, it was about to get hot. People were genuinely frightened. And, um, you know, fear has some problems when it comes uh, to activism. It isn't always the greatest way um, to spur people into action. And sometimes it can cause forms of activism that maybe aren't as great as they could be otherwise. But still, it's pretty powerful as a motivating factor. And there were, I mean, people were very concerned about the prospect of nuclear war. This wasn't something just totally in the abstract um, that existed as a kind of like vague apocalyptic threat. It was something that was talked about constantly. Uh, there was a, a cold war between us and the Soviets. There were proxy wars. Um, there was a, an understanding that this could at any moment boil over into an actual nuclear conflict. And regardless of there being a, a nuclear exchange, uh, you had countries testing nuclear weapons um, above ground. I mean, at this point, the tests hadn't even moved below ground. So there was a real threat to the environment, to people's public health. And, and, People were very scared by it. Let's uh, uh, so let's continue then and get into sort of um, the post Cold War period. Um, you know, we get through the eighties, the Soviet Union collapses. Um, suddenly, it becomes possible, or it looks like it may be possible, uh, to really do something. Uh, to get rid of these weapons, not just to limit them or to impose sort of guardrails on their use or to on their development, uh, but to actually start to get rid of them. You have the START one treaty, the START uh, two treaty, uh, both negotiated in the early nineties, the comprehensive test ban treaty um, in the mid nineties. Um, what are, what are the, what do we see sort of in the window of time, let's say between uh, the end of the Cold War and the start of the War on Terror, uh, in terms of the the sort of discussion about nukes and the environment around uh, their existence. Well, um, I think that you there are a couple things going on here. Um, you have the end of the Cold War, and then there's kind of a few years of um, drawdown. You know where the nukes are being disassembled. Um, you know there's. Uh, different programs that are ongoing for making sure that their, um, you know, materials are, are dealt with co correctly, um, that, you know, nukes are withdrawn from the um, former Soviet republics. Um, it's just, there's kind of this post-Cold War period, um, like, you know, cooling off period, um, where I think expectations of um, getting rid of nuclear weapons eventually were still high, but in a certain way that, um, where what you see today, this very frustrating situation where we still have 
a lot of nuclear weapons in the world um, and countries that are actively, you know, developing their nuclear weapons programs. You can include the U.S. in that. Uh, and yet this kind of combination of a lack of awareness that this is still ongoing, that um, the risk of nuclear use is by all indications still very high, um, as well as, um, you know, almost a, a lack of, of awareness that these weapons exist at all, right? There's kind of this rhetorical accomplishment of the Cold War ending, um, which is sort of seen as having ended the threat of nuclear weapons um, on some level. Um, so I would say in the 90s, um, you're seeing like a little bit of a, of a move of emphasis away from nuclear weapons as an issue as, you know, the sort of economic impact of the uh, the end of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and Russia becomes clear um, as from that, you know, you're seeing the, um, the you know, the U.S. has the sense that Russia is not sort of this uh, formidable competitor in the way of the, the Soviet Union. Um, and I think later, you know, which we might talk about a little bit later when we're moving towards New START and sort of this new effort to get rid of nuclear weapons, a lot of that has to do with a reassessment of, of Russia's place in, in the world. Yeah, it seems like the 90s were a moment of kind of bifurcation uh, on nuclear weapons, where on the one hand, you had the genuinely positive news of U.S. and Russia working together um, to try to decrease arsenals, um, use like turn fissile material that would have been used for nuclear weapons um, into uh, material to power, you know, nuclear energy. Um, but on the other hand, you also have a kind of consolidation, particularly in the lab um, apparatus, apparatuses, where uh, instead of talking about how the numbers are going to decline and ultimately nuclear weapons are going to be eliminated, the assumption becomes sort of like, well, we're going to be here indefinitely simply at lower numbers, you know, lower arsenal numbers. Um, and the labs start to talk about stockpile stewardship, being a good steward of the nuclear stockpile as it exists, making sure that it's safe and usable, even if it isn't technically tested in the way that it was before. Um, and, you know, that that's clearly preferable to having above and below ground testing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the assumption of all that work was that we would have nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future um, in much the same way that right now uh, the talk of modernization is literally guarantee guaranteeing that we will have nuclear weapons for the next 70 or 80 years. This is I mean, this is an interesting dichotomy because, you know, Emma Claire, you noted the new START treaty, uh, you know, negotiated by the Obama administration uh, with Russia that sort of. Uh, you know, looked like it was reinvigorating uh, the push to to reduce the stockpiles our, our stockpiles of nuclear weapons, and yet we're sitting here now in in 2021, and and I mean we could talk a little bit about uh, the damage that the Trump administration did to to nuclear arms control uh, kind of regimes around the world, um, but th the push to modernize uh, these weapons to uh, spend hundreds of billions of dollars. And I, I think, you know, the fanciful best case scenario, it's probably, uh, would probably be considerably more than that, uh, to, to modernize the nuclear arsenal. And as you say, John, to, to ensure basically, uh, that these things are going to be around for decades to come. Um, what, what explains this sort of bifurcated 
path we've taken since, you know, since let's say 2001, if we want to mark uh, the the war on terror as a sort of shift point. Um, what what to your mind explains this like two track thing that's going on here? Well. I would say the longer I stay in this field, the more vulgar my interpretation of this becomes. And I'm certainly not alone in this, but I mean, it's about, um, the, you know, the role that defense investment has come to play, um, in U S politics. Um, you can really see a change. And this is something that, um, a lot of my work focuses on, on now between the way that, um, the Defense Department, um, that U- U.S. leaders talk to uh, communities where there are, uh, you know, facilities for manufacturing um, our various armaments in the 50s and 60s and then into the 70s where a change kind of occurs from it being, um, you know, like a like a good thing, like a source of jobs and, and um, a certain economic stability. But, but there is a sense that, you know, if the facility is no longer needed if, uh, if a military engagement ends, if XYZ changes, um, you know, they could and would be maybe pulled out of that community um, because they're simply not needed anymore. Um, I would say uh, in the 70s and then um, moving forward, uh, you know, the the U.S. Uh, bails out Lockheed um, and, and there are sort of a few other changes that are happening on the ground. And what's happening is that um, it, the communities and the Department of Defense starts to see um, defense spending as like a, a kind of a stable uh, form of economic development. Um, and this change, I think, happened slowly over decades, but, um, you know, it went from a situation where the Department of Defense had a, an office for helping communities transition away from uh, defense funding as a main source of, uh, of jobs to now an office which is from the same the same original office, but is now focused on, I think it's called uh, supporting defense communities is the new, is the new uh, wording. So it's a, it's much more, you know, thought of as like, we're going to be here for a while. And I think nuclear weapons are kind of at the center of this approach to um, using defense funding. as just kind of this like endless cash cow, you know, it's like, as, um, as you mentioned, uh, Daniel, that um, it's all this kind of like really you know, boring fan fiction. Like it's a, it's deeply like a fantastical the way we think about nuclear weapons. Um, but it 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 is a really powerful, you know, way to argue for um, spending more and more money on defense as a way of uh, sustaining, um, you know, certain certain people within the U.S. economy um, making a lot of money off of the nuclear weapons uh, establishment. So I mean. When, when you talk about the whys of modernization, you can talk about strategy, you know, forever. And there are many different arguments you can make. But I think fundamentally, that's what it's about. I would add to that. It's good that numbers are going down. I mean, it's absolutely true that the number of nuclear warheads in the world is vastly smaller now than it was, you know, during the Cold War. And that's absolutely an objectively good thing. But at the same time, numbers aren't everything. and you have the major nuclear armed powers, including the United States, changing their arsenals and creating new capabilities so that they can better deliver a nuclear warhead. So you have quantitative improvements in the abstract, but you also have qualitative uh, 
Changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They would say there were improvements, I suppose. <laughs> Realize I took my talk myself into a corner there. But yeah, you know, on the, on, the, on the one hand, right, it's good that the numbers are going down. That's a that's a quantitative, you know, gain for the side of disarmament. But at the same time, if that me if the weapons that are being developed and are going to be with us for decades to become are qualitatively better or qualitatively different, and in some cases might actually increase the risk of nuclear war, well, you have to kind of weigh those things against each other. And I think what's so frustrating about the abstract numbers argument is that the U.S. gets to, and the other nuclear armed states too, get to point to it and say like, isn't this great? We've made all these improvements. Disarmament is happening. Yet at the same time, they're developing new capabilities that are going to be with, with us for you know years and years to come. Could we talk a little bit about where are nuclear land-based nuclear weapons actually in the United States? Um, what communities do they affect and how do they affect particular communities? My, my sense as a non-expert is they're mostly in the Mountain West, um, but I'm curious if that's correct or incorrect. Um, and, and, you know, how does it affect actual people here in this country? Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's correct. They're located in, um, Five states in the upper Midwest to the West. We got Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Wyoming, and um, oh no, what, oh no, what's the Colorado? One? Colorado. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> I'm panicking. Um, but yeah, so that's um, you have them located in these sort of like um, very rural states where I a lot of times the um, the bases that manage these weapons are kind of the main economic drivers of these smaller communities. Um, and, you know, talking to people in those communities, there is a, a sense of sort of, um, well, I can, you know, I can understand why you would put these weapons out here where there are relatively few people. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> we live here uh, and like living in the nuclear sponge is, um, you know, not always uh, something that's easy, you know, you don't always rest easy when this is kind of the uh, national security logic of, of your country. But I think that um, there's, you know, there's also a sense that um, the, it, it kind of gives and you and you hear this when you talk to, you know, regional leaders, state leaders, certainly people who are part of what's called the ICBM caucus um, in Congress, um, representatives from the state um, who are, you know, very well supported by the companies that are that are benefiting the most from this, um, especially Northrop Grumman that has the the contract to replace the land based nuclear missiles. Um, that you know, there's a there's a sense of of pride and importance that comes from the presence of uh, land based missiles there. Um, at the you know, so at the same time, it's like um, when you talk to activists in these states, uh, there's there's a sense that the incredible amount of investment that's going into the weapons could go elsewhere. You know, it's like um, Montana, for example, it's a, a state I've done a lot of work in. Um, tourism and agriculture are its two main industries, but you have, you know, you know, people who come to do fly fishing, like, can't because the waters are too warm now to support fish um, because of, you know, rising temperatures. Um, agriculture is in a similar situation with massive fires and, you know, um, just a real foundational risk to the economies of these states. So I think there's a real, you know, sense of appetite here that, that there could be a better way to <laughs> approach um, sustaining the upper Midwest and, and the West and um, just this continued investment in these, in these weapon systems that, you know, really feel arcane and sort of, you know, based on a, on a political bargain um, that we're not, you know, prepared to uphold. Why don't we, um, why don't we talk about 
another friend of the show, Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> one of, uh, it seems to me, one of the lingering, one of the legacies, really, of, of the Trump administration, uh, which is hopefully over. I don't know. We'll see in 2024, I guess. Uh, but one of the, the real legacies of the Trump administration is the extent to which um, he, and uh, you know, operating to some degree under the influence of John Bolton, who never met an arms control treaty, he didn't want to trash. Um, but the extent to which his administration really undermined uh, the global arms control uh, architecture. And, and, you know, there, there are treaties, you know, obviously the United States withdrew from the open skies treaty. It withdrew from the intermediate range nuclear forces, uh, treaty. Um, it almost, I mean, but for, uh, Trump's defeat in November, uh, probably would have withdrawn from new start or at least not allowed new start to lapse. Um, and and then you know the other the other consideration the other thing that that they did that really I think undermined nonproliferation efforts was pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal and and taking this agreement that had um, really established uh, some strict limitations a- on um, the Iranian nuclear program and. Uh, just basically announced to the world that you can't do these kinds of agreements with the United States because we can't be trusted uh, to uphold our our end of the bargain. Um, I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about the the overall, you know, taking these things in toto, uh, kind of the overall damage that the Trump administration did uh, in this particular area. Um, well, I would say that, uh, yeah, the Trump administration was pretty uh, uniquely destructive uh, when it comes to arms control. Um, and it really accelerated, I would say, uh, a lack of trust on the part of other uh, nuclear weapons countries and other countries that are either you know, interested in having nuclear weapons or suspected of having them, regardless of what the reality is, um, that the U.S. is just, you know, not, not, again, as you said, not reliable in a sense that it, if it concludes a nuclear agreement, it may not last past a presidential uh, term, and um, not interested in um, honoring its own commitments to eliminate nuclear weapons in a um, in the foreseeable future in a timely fashion. And, you know, I think the uh, commitment to modernization does um, is a really obvious public sign of that. Um, I think that that's kind of a an issue that gets a little bit undersold when we're talking nuclear diplomacy, but that's really important for understanding how the different nuclear weapons countries are making decisions around uh, this topic. Um, I know that that's something that comes up a lot in sort of the North Korea nuclear weapons rhetoric about, you know, we'll, dis- we'll denuclearize when the U.S. does, um, China as well, um, you know, which has far less than 10% of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, but um, we'll, co- we'll talk about how um, the U.S., you know, it'll come into these sort of trilateral nuclear negotiations that um, the Trump administration especially, but I think others as well, have been re- were really gung-ho about having the U.S., China, and Russia as kind of this nuclear, uh, um, the sort of leaders of nuclear arms control. Um, you know, when the U.S. is willing to bring and the U.S. and Russia are willing to bring their arsenals down to, to their levels. So there's a sense that like um, on the international scene, I would say the U.S. there's like a double standard, which is you know pretty obvious if you look at it for more than a few seconds that um, has 
long stood in the way of um, progress on these issues. One of the um, other things, aspects of the Trump administration that's relevant here um, are the revelations of his sort of last days in office and that, that came out of uh, Bob Woodward's latest book. Uh, on his administration and the stories of uh, Mark Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, kind of worried that Trump was going to launch nuclear weapons at somebody and, and sort of uh, making plans for what to do and if he did that. Um, and it raised the question of uh, sole authority, which is a, an ongoing debate. Uh, in the nuclear community over, you know, the the president's power to order a nuclear strike, uh, sort of unquestioned power, really, to order a nuclear strike, and whether that's uh, the kind of power that we want to put in uh, the hands of a single individual, particularly if that single individual could turn out to be, uh, you know, an ex-reality show TV host um, who doesn't really, you know, know what he's doing. Um, what, can you guys talk, and John, maybe you can, you can start us off here, talk a little bit about sole authority and the um the the arguments about it and and what kind of framework we could replace it with that would be a little bit more um maybe more reassuring sure well right now the president has unilateral sole authority to launch a nuclear strike he doesn't have any real oversight uh there's no one else that gets a vote it's the sole authority of the president to launch a nuclear weapon if he wants. Um, now, as some people are often fond of saying, there are some quote unquote legal restraints on his ability to do that. Um, but in the heat of a moment, particularly a crisis, um, I don't know whether we can rely upon, you know, somebody's lawyers <laughs> um, stopping President Trump and saying like, well, well, hold on now, hold on now. Let's let's check to see whether that's legal. Um, I'm not sure we can really rely on that as a check um, on the president's authority. The usual argument made in favor of it is speed. Um, in the case of a nuclear attack or reports of a nuclear attack, you need to be able to respond quickly so that so therefore the president needs to have this power. Which um, is, I mean, which is wrapped up again in this fantasy that you can win a nuclear war, right? I mean, it's wrapped up in this like Randian uh, sci-fi world where it's possible to fight a conflict like that and win. You have to, you know, respond quickly. It, it absolutely is. I mean, it, and and it kind of you know neglects the possibility of there being an error in the uh, reports, uh, which is really foolhardy, in my opinion, because there have been errors in the past. Um, our systems are not infallible. And if you have bad information, do you really want to make a decision in less than 10 minutes that could, you know, impact the fate of the world? Um, it, it, you know, the original impetus to, for it, too, was to have civilian control rather than military control, which, you know, I'm a little more sympathetic to. But if you're only giving that control to a single person, uh, when, in fact, we have civilian control of, you know, control of government writ large, um, it seems pretty dangerous to me. And uh, what's happened with uh, this experience with Milley and Trump at the end of the tr of the of his presidency during the complete chaos of those last few days, it's really raised the issue, um, you know, to the, to, so that people are actually questioning, you know, maybe we can make improvements here. And, and to answer your question about that, I would say that the truth is that the system as it currently exists is so bad that almost any of the proposed alternatives would be better. 
Um, there's been, there's sometimes people have said that, for instance, um, the Secretary of Defense shouldn't just have to be consulted. He should actually have a vote. He should be able, or, or she should be able to vote and say, like, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, there's the possibility that, for instance, the Speaker of the House could be involved. Um, there's any number of different elected officials um, or appointed officials who represent civilian government um, that could be in the chain of command. Maybe you could have three so that all three of them would have to agree um, to go forward, or you could at least have a majority um, so that it isn't just one individual making making the choice. There's also the issue that if you were to launch a nuclear first strike, you would absolutely be going to war. And in this country, hypothetically anyway, the Constitution gives the ability to declare war to the Congress, not to the president. So there have been attempts in Congress uh, for instance, the Marky Lou legislation, but also the um, legislative attempt to, to simply have pass a no first use policy for the United States. These are ways to deal with that, to make it clear, legally clear, that the president simply does not have the ability to do that without any sort of congressional oversight, uh, because it would be unconstitutional. But as things stand right now, the president has the legal ability to launch a nuclear weapon whenever he wants. And there really isn't anything anyone else can say about it. Why don't we, you brought this up, uh, and why don't we close out with this, another, which is another sort of ongoing debate uh, in the, the sort of nuclear space um, about the idea of the United States adopting a no-first-use policy. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is uh, and what it might mean uh, for the United States to adopt to adopt that as a uh, as a guiding policy for its nuclear uh, arsenal. Yeah. So in a very um, in a very one on one mode here, uh, no first use policy simply means that the U.S. would expressly say that um, you, the U.S. will not use nuclear weapons first uh, in a conflict. Um, there are Kind and what this sorry there's then there's a corollary with this which is that um, it would then in order to sort of make good on this policy have to adjust the way um, it bases its nuclear weapons and the processes for launching a nuclear weapon um, so that there's not you know you're not saying this and then um, you're just you know maintaining the ability to launch a first strike. Because the whole point of, you know, having a declaratory policy is sort of um, that that matches up with the way that your nuclear capabilities are structured is so that, you know, other countries that are looking at the U.S. being like, are they going to nuke us can sort of know that you mean what you say. Um, there are other weaker versions of this um, known as uh, sole purpose, uh, which, you know, have the declaration, but not necessarily adjustments to the force. Um, so that introduces some strategic issues that you could sort of think through if you're if you're a country trying to figure out if the U.S. is going to uh, first strike you. Um, there are kind of two interpretations to this, if you're and one of which will it will become clear that I believe, um, which is and perhaps already has become clear that if, if you tell people what you're going to do and you back it up with actions, um, it makes it much less likely that um, another country will, in the effort to try to decide to, to decide what the U.S. might do with its nuclear weapons accidentally, for example, um, respond to bad information that the U.S. has launched a first strike by launching what it thinks is a second strike. Um, we have historical uh, cases where this has almost happened and has been 
um, stopped by, you know, intuition or uh, last second good information that uh, that whatever information, whatever intelligence about a potential first strike was faulty. Um, and it makes for great television. It makes for a great story, but it's, uh, you know, it's a situation that, uh, by virtue of the way we structure our nuclear forces, you know, could happen at any point. Um, and, uh, it's just, you know, it's an incredible source of, of vulnerability for any nuclear weapons country and, you know, basically everybody else. Um, the criticism of it would be that, um, you know, it leaves the U.S. with fewer options. This is kind of a refrain you hear all the time. It ties the president's hands. Um, there's some situation, I don't know what it is, but some people seem to that like where a first strike might be necessary. Sometimes the idea is to respond to, you know, a biological or a chemical attack or, you know, you can sort of use your imagination to come up with um, any number of nightmare scenarios that might require destroying the whole world. Um, but the, the argument for no first use is fundamentally just the, the value of, of transparency um, when it comes to weapons that are so dangerous and, you know, capable of causing such massive destruction um, that there's, you know, no reason that we should ever use them, right? So, so, I mean, I guess if you're looking at this argument and you're someone who believes that there's a role for nuclear weapons going forward indefinitely into the future, um, what I see no first use leading to is like a more concerted approach to nuclear disarmament. And if, if you don't like disarmament, I can see why you might not like no first use. It's also worth noting that many of the people that we talk to about no first use and that partners of ours have talked to when they're trying to bring up the issue, many people think this is already the U.S. policy because they're so appalled, rightly, by the idea that we reserve the right to start a nuclear war, but that's what we do. Um, we have a policy of strategic ambiguity, intentional ambiguity about when and if we might use nuclear weapons and implicit in that ambiguity is absolutely a threat that we will use them. We could use them. So a lot of people rightly see no first use as common sense. Of course you would do this. Why on earth would you reserve that right? Um, and I think it's important to bring that up as well because it is a common sense policy. We're talking about, you know, a few, uh, it's controversial in Washington, but with the, uh, but a lot of polls have shown that something like two thirds of Americans support a no first use policy, which is a huge majority. So it's something that's commonsensical, it's good for security, um, and it should absolutely be implemented. And again, it seems like this is a, a relic uh, of this, idea that that coalesced in the sort of height of the cold war that you can win a nuclear exchange that you have to have these tactical options because it's important you know in, in fighting a nuclear war to be able to strike first and somehow you could win that uh, that conflict and, and it's it's fantasy but i suppose uh you know if we get into get you know back into the idea of uh, defense spending and how much money is tied up in this uh, particular type of weapon system. Uh, it's a convenient fantasy because it gives you the the sense that these are legitimate armaments that they're like any other kind of armament that they need to be treated that way, and uh, we need to buy more of them and and modernize them and spend you know trillions of dollars on it. Um, and and you know in reality, it's just so uh, obscene to even consider the idea that they would be used. Uh, that that it all seems uh, ridiculous in a way, I guess, unless you take the lens of uh, 
uh, where's the money going and who benefits. Mm-hmm. On that note, uh, <laughs> that's a nice, nice, cheery way to end uh, the interview, which is our specialty here on American Prestige. Uh, I want to thank Emma Claire Foley and John Carl Baker, both of you, for coming on the program uh, and uh, taking us through this uh, this very fraught topic. You're welcome. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks so much.